I'm Eric. I'm Lucas. And we are the Modern Agronomists. We are putting a modern spin on an old industry. Welcome back, guys. Today we have Amanda Smith from CP Feeds, nutritionist, um, northeast Wisconsin area. So could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Definitely. Thank you for letting me be here today. So I, like they said, um, I'm Amanda Smith, a nutritionist for CP Feeds, work with a lot of lactating customers, anywhere from 60 to 1,500 cows, and then do a lot on the calf and heifer side as well. Um, I've worked for CP Feeds for five years, grew up on a dairy in upstate New York, uh, moved out to Wisconsin about 10 years ago now. So I've loved being here. And then my fiance and I farm just outside of Reedsville, where we milk 80 cows. Is there anything that you brought from your background in New York this way? Besides my jerseys? Um, I think probably the biggest thing that I brought from home is just the work ethic and the dedication to always finishing the job, being committed, and doing what's best for both the people that are involved, but also the animals that we work and care for. So you, so you said you're mostly dairy then? Mostly dairy. So there, you, are you working with any other types of animals? Any, my teammates at CP do a lot with beef and swine, but I tend to stick more to dairy. It's my background, what I'm familiar with. So I guess getting into it a little bit, uh, what has been some of the biggest successes or trends that you've seen in feeding the lactating animals? I think, you know, obviously from when I was young and there was a lot more of the tie stall component type feeding, going into that TMR has been a big change. But even in the last five years, there's been a lot of change in how we're feeding cows, whether it's looking at more detailed nutrient specs and how those diets are being balanced and what they're being balanced for, to looking at that fiber piece of the diet and how digestible is it? How much undigestible fiber are we bringing to it? So I think a lot of it's just been advancements as we get more and more science to help us dial in those diets even tighter, more like a beef and a swine producer would be able to do. And so you you mentioned that you're working from herds of, let's say, 50 cows up to thousands or so. So without that TMR and some of those old-fashioned ways of feeding, is there a humongous difference on what you're looking at then? The cow and the rumen are the same, whether she's on a 50-cow dairy or a 1,000-cow dairy. So a lot of those specs and what you're looking for in that diet are very similar. It's just how it's going to be delivered and how we're going to get it to the cow. Um, TMR, obviously, we're a lot more consistent from feeding to feeding and bite to bite for that cow. Whereas in those more component or tie-cell type models, we do have a little bit more variability in what that cow is seeing. What are some of the things your growers are doing to push the needle in milk production? I think the biggest things they're doing, you know, they're looking at forage quality. So how do we continue to improve that? Looking at the digestibility of the forages they're using without getting too much digestibility in there. Um, You know, the other things, non-feed related, they're starting to look at genomics and how do we maximize the animals that are in our herd. So not just a ration and how do we push production from what she's eating, but how are we creating the best animals to continue with? So some guys, you know, they do the genomic testing at a month of age, and that's how they're determining who's going to stay in their population. Other ones are looking at, you know, the calves from the best cows. 
So they're really trying to tailor their pool of animals that they're using. You know, the other big thing is the ones that are doing really well, they've got a great team around them, and they're all focused on the same goals. They're all pulling in the same direction. They communicate, they talk, they're on the same page, and they're really dialed into that attention to detail. So they know not just the big picture, but they know every little thing that's happening as well, and they're all working together. Because we get on some farms where there's one brother and another brother that aren't on the same page, and it's really hard to move them because you can't get them to pull together. I think we run into that, just working in with other people. Yeah, and it's a lot tougher if you can't get them together to get them to go in the same direction. If this one wants to go this way and this one wants to go this way, it's hard to help that farm make progress. Let's let's go back to this 2020 season, I guess, for myself and Eric with the growers we work with. I think we thought we had a, a pretty good growing year. For once, finally a nice harvest, got it off timely. What are some of the, I guess, trends you're seeing in the feed that's in the bunks maybe, or, or what, what, what else are you seeing there? Yeah, from a haylage standpoint, we had really good quality there. Um, good protein, good digestibility to it. Corn silage has been a little bit trickier. It was a near ideal growing season, especially compared to 2019 where it was just we want to get this off the field and be able to have feed. Um, we have been seeing higher digestibilities on both our conventional and BMR corn silage varieties, anywhere from five to eight points higher than normal. And a lot of the BMRs are coming back really low starch. So we have very few samples that we're getting over 30, which is making it a challenge to pair it with some of those higher digestibilities because we've also got to push a pile of corn in there. Going back to the BMR, when BMR was brought to the industry, you know, I think it turned a lot of heads. It it helped a lot of dairies out. Do you see more of your dairies moving into the BMR direction or, or the low lignin direction or both? I see. I do see more that are moving that way. First, it depends if it's a fit for their management. So BMR, we need to be able to harvest it in a very tight window come corn silage. Herds that it takes them two or three weeks to get it off, we aren't necessarily pushing them that way because it's not going to be managed properly to make it the best feed that it can be. So first it starts with the farm. Are they prepared to handle it? And if they're not prepared to handle it, then pushing them that way is not going to make them happy with that decision. Um, And then it's kind of yield and how many acres do we have to work with. So we've been seeing on a lot of the farms we work with in that 18 ton to the acre BMR this year. Some farms that just doesn't fit with the crop acres they have to take that little bit of a yield hit to get that digestibility. So then we'll look at some high cutting or some other things to help them leave some of the bottom of that plant behind. But herds where we've got the land and we've got the management down, we have looked at that BMR and low lignin piece. The combination of the two together has been a little bit tricky lately, especially when we get these really high digestibilities. And those are the herds where you'd expect milk production to be great because we have such highly digestible forage. But looking at that undigestible fraction. We're just not keeping enough fiber in that diet to really make that rumen happy and function the way it should. So then we're looking at having to bring in, you know, a low quality baled hay or straw to slow that down, which adds a lot of cost to the diet, especially when we've got this corn silage and haylage that we spent money on and grew. 
if you could pick one BMR or low lignin alfalfa that a dairy, if they were, if they didn't have either of them and you were to pick one, which one do you think you'd introduce to the farm? And I know that's pretty open-ended because yep. of limitations mm-hmm. and other things, but. Yeah, I think I'd probably look at the BMR first, whether that's going to straight BMR or blending it 50-50 with a conventional variety. I think they're going to get more potential off of that. We tend to feed more high corn silage diets anyway. We really don't have many that are 50-50 haylage corn silage. It's more 75 or 80% corn silage. So being able to maximize the digestibility on that higher fraction of the diet would have a bigger impact for sure. So, so you, go ahead, Luke. I was so you mentioned some of your growers going to the fifty fifty BMR to conventional. Is that strictly for tonnage or is it based off how it's feeding? It's both. So when they get eighteen ton to the acre BMR, they're disappointed. Right. They don't like that tonnage number, especially not compared to just straight conventional and what they've been used to in the past. So part of it is trying to maximize their tons a little bit more, but then pull some of that digestibility back where we've gotten these really high numbers. Do you see that being tough as far as the guys not being able to segregate it on the farm? If they are growing, let's say, 60% BMR, 40% conventional, and it's all going on one stack, I mean, would you rather see it segregated? No, because... I think it's going to be easier to feed it when it's all in one pile co-mingled. If it's segregated, we've got to try and balance and blend the two once they're off the field. So putting them in the planter and splitting them however it needs to be split in the boxes seems to be the best way to do it so that we can get it evenly spaced out in the field and hopefully get an even pile as we go through. When growers ask you about BMR, low lignin alfalfa, and you talked about is it a fit for that farm? Are you, do you feel like you help persuade that decision more or does a grower just come to you and say, yep, we're growing BMR this year and we're going to just try it and you have to make it work. Do you feel like you're more involved in that decision or you're kind of just, here you go, let's, let's make it work? It really depends on the farm and the relationship that we have with each individual client. Some it's, you know, they bring it to you early. We want to try this. What do you think? How does it fit? Can we get some samples from somebody else and just plug it in, see how it looks in our ration? Others, it's, I planted this, figure out how to feed it. And those are the ones where it's a little bit more challenging because it may not be the right fit, but you've got to figure out how do I make this pile of feed work to the best advantage from a milk and component standpoint so that they either love it or hate it whatever it ends up being. I think that could be a challenge. I mean, Absolutely. you can't take it back. Once it's on a pile, it's on a pile, and I don't think they're going to want to get rid of it. So I, I can see no. that being a Once big challenge. they've harvested it, they want to feed it to somebody. So if you get you know, a really low-quality crop and we don't have heifers or dry cows to go to with it, then it becomes a challenge of how do we make this work? Or if we get corn silage that comes off really early and is 12% starch. How do I make this work? So since we're still kind of the BMR thing, how hard is it to transition into that? Let's say if I you have a grower that's strictly conventional and he says now we're going to BMR, you, we've kind of always, or at least I've heard of horror stories potentially by switching over and not doing things right. What are some of the maybe 
things to look at if that was going to be a decision. Yeah. So I think the big things, you know, we would want to make it a gradual transition, and that's going to be whenever we go from any new crop, whether it's haylage, corn silage, corn silage should be MR. Um, so having enough carryover that we can blend together over a couple of weeks so that it's not a just we're changing this today. Um, you know, and then making sure we have enough tonnage to be able to feed more of it. Because that's the other big thing with BMR is we're going to feed more. Because we've got that digestibility piece, we've got to throw more fiber into that rumen to help slow everything down enough, help hold it in. So not only do they take a little bit of a yield hit compared to their conventional varieties, but they've also got to feed more of it. So where we can have the discussions ahead of time of how are we going to feed this, how many tons do we need, how many acres, taking that into account is important because there's going to be less off the field, but we're going to have to feed more of it. And how is that going to look for each individual farm? And I think that is a big deal. I had a grower this year that they just grew BMR exclusively for the first time, and they, I don't think they thought that all the way through. Mm-hmm. And here we are. They're nervous that they're going to run out of, of corn silage, and this would be the first time ever. Um, yeah, and it's usually if you can walk before you run, it tends to go better. So if you do a year where you've got your conventional, a year where you blend them, and then a year where you just – try the BMR on its own I think you've got a better feel for what it might look like or feed like than if it's okay we're going from conventional to BMR tomorrow. One one problem I think I've been hearing a lot that's come up is having enough feed for dry cows heifers um, we get hit up a lot with alternative feeds whether sorghums um, is that something you see on a lot of your on your your dairies? Yeah, we see that in a lot of places, having a heifer quality feed, because we don't necessarily want to throw our BMR and our low lignin into those animals. A, it's expensive to get that to them, but it's really got a lot more nutrition and calories than they need. So, you know, if we look at a heifer diet, we're trying to keep them from getting fat. That's our biggest thing once they're pregnant is how do we keep body weight maintained on these animals? Because if they come in and they're heavy, they're going to have ketosis and a lot of other metabolic disorders that that farm's got to try and struggle them through if they make it through that first 30 days in milk and then get get them to perform for the next rest of their lactation. So heifer quality, dry cow quality feed is something we're always looking for. How do we get feed that's low enough quality that it's going to fill these animals but not give us excess energy? So would you say most of that is just rye or grass crops? or We'll feed whatever we can get. So it's rye, sorghum, sedan, triticale, peas and oats, whatever. There's some guys that are looking at tropical corn silage or long day corn silage. It's not going to put much starch into it. We had a grower do tropical corn the last two years. and I mean, it was magnificent ton-wise, mm-hmm. but I... I think it actually didn't have quite enough starch. I mean, there was nothing there. I think they were hoping for a little bit more starch, if I remember correctly. But And a lot of the places I work with, we're shooting that it doesn't even start to develop starch. We want as little starch as possible. That thing's a monster, isn't it? Yeah. It's green pretty long, though. Mm-hmm. That was definitely a November chop. <laughs> mm-hmm. So you kind of mentioned... With all these different options and cropping and stuff, are you really starting to see a need to maybe 
have these conversations with the growers, agronomists, whoever he's working with, so we can start, you know, getting ahead of the game and, and pinpointing stuff before, before it goes on the ground or before it's fed. Definitely. I think that's huge to have that conversation ahead of time. You know, this time of year, start looking at what do we need for acres or even earlier if they need it before they decide on their seed orders. But looking at how many cows am I planning to milk? Who do I need feed for? How many acres do I think I need of each of everything so that I don't end up with a bunch of haylage I didn't want? And you guys had no idea that that's what we needed to grow. So I think it's important to have that communication so that everyone's on the same page. And then, you know, that extends into the harvest season. What's going to get us the tonnage and the moisture and the quality we need so that you guys can help them figure out when to cut, how to fertilize. But I end up with something that's going to work in the cow. So CP Feeds has, I mean, multiple nutritionists, correct? Do you do a lot of um, collaborating with your counterparts on when problems arise or something's kind of throwing you for a loop? Yeah, we definitely work as a team, especially when we get into the farms that are over 500 cows. There's always two of us on the farm. Um, It gives us an opportunity to bounce ideas off of each other. Um, If someone can't be there for whatever reason, someone can backfill and knows what's going on at all times. So we do a lot of team work on our on our end you know and then we work with Perina and Dave LeCount as our tech support so we'll bring him in when we're having trouble as well but we definitely have relied on that teamwork piece of it over the last five years to help strengthen us as a group. And do you think if the agronomist was maybe more involved in that collaboration do you feel like that would provide you with a better better feed us with better just insight as to what we need to have out in the field. I definitely think so because if we're all on the same page, like I said before, we can move in the same direction, but if we're never even in the same book, you might have one goal more ton focused or quality focused that we don't have necessarily. So I think it's important to get together and you know, the farms where we're having a lot of success right now, we have those meetings with their agronomist and their crop manager and all sit down together to figure out what's the best combination of feed for the cows and the acres and how do we make everything work. So we'll sit down with the farm and their agronomist and have that plan of cow numbers, tonnage, here's what we need to feed. And then getting into the harvest season, we'll meet a couple times. You know, Here's what the samples are looking like. How do we fix some of these moisture issues we might be having during corn silage. You know, we'll meet as a group, bring the agronomist in. When does it look like we're going to start? How do we have enough people to make this harvest happen in a timely manner? And then we're checking the kernel processing, the moistures. What does it all look like so that we get the best feed? So going forward, I mean, you've been doing this for, for a while now. What gets you excited? What is the next thing that you maybe see coming or that you have already seen that that gets you excited in nutrition on what what you can maybe get out? So, I mean, what excites me is helping people. So helping them reach and meet their goals and set that next goal. So that's kind of my personal motivator for what I love to do is just 
helping that farm hit that goal that they've always had and haven't been able to get to. Things that excite me, I think we've got a lot of potential on a lot of these farms to really dial in tighter on our management and how we're running these farms, getting more involved with that piece of it and how do we make our teams more effective, whether it's their employee team or the team as a whole, to help make things more efficient, get them the most return that we can. You know, we've also really focused in on pounds of fat and protein that that farm is shipping off every day because pounds per cow, I think for a long time was a great thing that we talked about. You know, my cows are milking a hundred pounds. They don't pay us for pounds of milk. They pay us for pounds of fat and pounds of protein. So volume is great, but you've got to have the components to go with it, which is when a lot of this agronomic stuff comes into play because we need to make sure that we've got the butter fat and right now the milk protein to really help support their income. Have the goals changed much since when you've started with the growers you've worked with? The goals are evolving over time. You know, I think a lot of them still want to be in that hundred pounds, but they've shifted more, you know, from being at six or six and a half pounds of fat and protein per day to, I want to be at seven. So they're moving their goal to get there. So to get seven pounds of fat and protein, that'd be a herd that's at 100 pounds of milk with a 4% butter fat and a 3% protein. So how do we get there is what a lot of them want to do. Do you think there just comes a point where you can't get any higher? That's a very open-ended question yep, too. Yep. But I mean, with crops too, I mean, there just seems like there's a limit. I mean, mm-hmm. You can only get so many bushels per acre. I mean, I'm, I'm guessing there you might have a number in mind in your world. You know, I don't know if there is a limit yet. You know, there's cows that'll milk 78, 80,000 pounds of lactation. So if those cows can do it, how do we, you know, just move some of these herds to 40,000 pounds? So I think we've got a long way to go before we reach what they call the genetic potential of these animals. But a lot of it then comes into the agronomic piece of it, but also, you know, the genomics and what quality of animals do we have in that herd? Are we breeding from the best of the best or are we keeping cows around that it takes seven, eight times to breed her? Why do we want her genetics in the herd? It's the same thing in the field. We're trying to get the best genetics in these plants that we can, but why do we have some of these poor genetic animals that we're trying to get to perform? Do you think genetics is a bigger driver in increasing these numbers or feed quality? I think genetics is probably that next frontier. There are definitely some farms where that feed quality piece of it is still a huge opportunity to move them first. But on the ones where they've got good quality feed and they've really dialed in on that part of it, then it's the genetics and who are we milking every day. So there's more herds that, you know, the genomics or the embryo work to just get animals out of the best of the best and then letting that bottom pool of animals be bred to beef so that they're just propagating the animals that they know breed back well, that milk well, that have good components instead of everyone gets a chance to live just because she was born here. That doesn't mean that she's the best fit to continue on in the farm. Might be kind of a silly question, but is do you look at breed at all of the animals you're working with? I mean, 
for what's expected or what you're what you're seeing? Yeah, breed will factor in a little bit. Um, in your Holsteins, you're typically going to get more volume and a little bit lower components. Jerseys, you'll get lower volume, higher components. So there is some influence there, but when we energy correct or adjust to put everyone on an equal playing field, we work with herds of jerseys that milk just as well as their Holstein counterparts. It's just that their milk composition looks a little bit different. So I think everyone can achieve the goals. It just depends on the, the breed. Sure. You know, how do we get there? It just looks different. All right, guys and gals, we're going to wrap it up with Amanda. Uh, once again, she's with CP Feeds, and she's been working with us for, for five years here. So thanks for joining us today. Thank yeah, you. Thank you, guys. I appreciate it.